Thomas Hobbes, who lived from 1588 to 1679, the moral and political philosopher, observed that the relation between the individual and the state might best be seen as a covenant of union. What Hobbes argues is that you and I, as members of society, come together, whether we realize it or not, and agree to have a leader or a group of leaders rule over us. There's a covenant, an agreement that we make as society with the, with the state and those who lead us. The word covenant is used not only to relate then to our relationship with the state, it is used to describe the relationship among nations. We think of those who are part of the UN. Whether you think the UN is effective or not is beside the point. But there is a covenant, there is agreement among nations to stand for equal rights and justice and to fight against diseases and a multiplicity of issues that are before them. When we think of covenant, we not only think of agreements between nations, we think of the marriage covenant, an agreement between a man and his wife. Now, while then there are usages of the term covenant today, it is nevertheless true that by and large the term covenant buried in the Old Testament is not one of the words that is often used today. It is not a part of the common parlance of 21st century society. And yet this language of covenant has great theological import that we ought not to set aside. The book of Hebrews particularly speaks pointedly about the covenant that God has established between himself and his people. In fact, of the 33 times the term covenant is used in the New Testament, 17 of them occur in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 8, we find a description of the new covenant that God has established with his people. But before we talk more specifically about the new covenant, I want to orient this theme of the covenant in chapter 8 in the broader spectrum of the argument that the writer develops. You'll remember that he has been arguing that Jesus Christ is better. And he says that Jesus Christ is better than the Levitical priesthood because he belongs to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so his priesthood is superior because he comes from the line of Melchizedek. In chapter 8, he says that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests, not only because he comes from a superior line, the line of Melchizedek, but that Jesus is superior to all other priests because he serves in a superior place. And that is what you find in chapter 8, 1 to 6. That whereas the Old Testament priest served in, a, in an earthly temple or tabernacle, Jesus Christ carries on his ministry in the heavenly tabernacle. 
in the heavenly tabernacle that is in the very presence of God. And this is what he makes in verse, the point he makes in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And the throne of the majesty in the heavens is a circumlocution. It's another way of saying in the, at the throne of God. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens that is at the throne of God. And he's saying that this ministry that Jesus executes and carries out at the right hand of God is in fact this place in heaven that this is the true tabernacle. And that the tabernacle or the temple on earth in which the Levitical priests served was a shadow and a type, a prefigurement of this true tabernacle that is in heaven. Now he argues that Jesus is in heaven and as a priest he had something to offer. And he makes it very clear that our Lord Jesus Christ therefore brought gifts. And it's referring here to his death on the cross. He argues that if he were on earth, that is our Lord were on earth, he would not be a priest because the law laid out specific guidelines for the Levitical priesthood. But he makes it clear again in verse 5 that those who are serving in the earthly tabernacle are in fact serving in the shadow, in the pattern of the true tabernacle which is in heaven. In verse 6, he comes to a significant statement about the Lord. He says, but now, that is our Lord, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So you see the argument here. Jesus Christ is superior because he serves in a superior place in heaven at the right hand of God. But secondly, Jesus is superior precisely because he is the mediator of a superior covenant, a, a covenant which he describes as a better covenant and one that is established upon better promises. This passage will lead us to the new covenant. In particular, in verses 8 to 12, we will see a description of the content of this new covenant. And in verses 8 to 10, we have the longest quotation in the Old Testament, taken from the very passage we read together from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, where the Lord promised Jeremiah that he will make a new covenant with his people. What do we mean by covenant? Well, whatever you think covenant means, you need to recognize that covenant, the language of covenant, pervades the Scriptures. The Bible bristles with the language of covenant. In fact, one might draw the conclusion that all of God's dealings with humanity, he has dealt with us in covenant. There is, for instance, a belief that there was a covenant with Adam, a covenant of creation. There is, in the scriptures, a covenant with Noah. The first reference to Berith or covenant in the Old Testament occurs in Genesis 6 verse 18 where God promised to establish a covenant with Noah. We know that there was a covenant that God made with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David, and then finally the greatest of all the covenants 
the new covenant predicted by Jeremiah and referred to now by the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 8. One might argue that covenant forms the backbone of Scripture, that the biblical narrative, that the plot line of Scripture is carried along on the concept of covenant, that all of God's dealings with his people has been on the basis of a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Generally, we say that a covenant is a solemn binding agreement between two or more persons ratified by blood. That is what the Old Testament view as covenant. A solemn binding agreement between two or more persons that is ratified by blood. Generally, when we think of covenant, we think of contract. But there is a significant difference between a covenant and a contract. Where a covenant is concerned, it differs in this sense. If you consider a contract, it is often a contract between people, and it involves the matter of goods and services. You make an agreement. We make an agreement with people to redo the parking lot. We sign a document. They promise to do, redo the parking lot, and we agree to pay them a sum, a sum of money. That's a contract. It's about goods and about services. But a covenant was different and is different. You see, a covenant does not just deal and does not just deal with goods and services. A covenant is essentially about a relationship. That is why marriage is seen as a marriage covenant. Because it is about a relationship. And when the Bible describes the new covenant, it is describing a relationship in which God enters with his people. It is a binding legal arrangement that God has made with his people. And so if you understand that, that it is essentially about a relationship, a binding relationship, a commitment that God has made to his people, then you are then on good grounds in understanding a covenant. There are three things I want to say about the new covenant as described before us here in chapter 8. First, I want us to consider the source of the new covenant. Then secondly, I want us to look at the promises or the blessings of the new covenant. And finally, the basis of the new covenant. First then, the source of the new covenant. Beginning in verse 7, after identifying Jesus as the mediator, the one who stands then as the one who stands between us and God in the new covenant, the writer explains the need for a new covenant or another covenant. He says, for if that first covenant, referring to the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is very obvious that the Mosaic covenant was never intended to be permanent. It was to point to the greater new covenant that God would bring into effect. And the reason that there had to be a second covenant is because the first covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel, had a flaw. It had a fault. It had a weakness. 
And what was the weakness of this first covenant, the Mosaic covenant? Well, the writer explains this, that this covenant was one in which compliance to the law of God was not enabled. In other words, put it better, the old covenant did not enable one to keep the law. See, in verse 9 it says, not according, God is going to make a new covenant. In verse, in verse 8, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them up by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. You see, what the Mosaic covenant did was that he gave us stipulations. It says, thou shalt not do, thou shalt not do. This is what you should do. It laid out for us the moral precepts of God. But what the Mosaic Covenant could not do is that it could not enable us to keep the requirements of God. I think that the Puritan writer of that immortal pilgrim progress describes the weakness of the law when he says, the law says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. It could not enforce compliance to the requirements that it laid out for God's people. And so God undertook to establish a new covenant. And you will notice that this new covenant is by divine initiative. In verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. You need to know anything else before you go further. The the thing that you need to know about the new covenant, it is that its source is in God. It is by divine initiative. It is God who led Israel through the wilderness and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. It is this God who will make a covenant with his people, all under the covenant of grace. And as you look at this quotation from Jeremiah 31 to 34, verse 31 to 34, you will notice that there is a preponderance, an abundance of emphasis upon I will. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. The Lord says, I will put my laws in their minds and I will be their God. He goes on and he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. You see, this is God committing himself. This is a unilateral or monogistic covenant. This is not a covenant where two people get together and they agree on terms, where God calls us into a, into a meeting and saying, here are my stipulations and what are yours? And together we hammer out an agreement. It is God who makes an agreement, who makes a commitment to us to do what's good. That is the essence of this new covenant is a unilateral covenant, a covenant that God makes with his people. It is the working of the sovereign God. Throughout the book of Hebrews, God reveals himself as the God who sits on the throne of majesty in chapter 8 verse 1. He's described as a consuming fire. And yet this God is a relational being, a God who enters into relationship, who enters into agreements. You see, the Bible and Hebrews in particular, at least for our purpose, 
describes God as a source of revelation. God is a speaking God. He did not remain silent, but he spoke to the fathers and to the prophets in ancient times, in various ways, in dreams and in visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in the Son. You see, the God that we serve takes the initiative in revelation. Because unless God reveals himself, we will never be able to know him. But God also takes the initiative not only in revelation, but in salvation. It is he who inaugurates this new covenant. It is he who enters into this communion with us who binds himself to his people. It is therefore his initiative. But the second thing that we must observe is that not only do we see the source of the new covenant as God's initiative, we see, secondly, the promises of the new covenant, and they are great, and they are marvelous. In Hebrews 7.22, the writer of Hebrews depicts the covenant as a better covenant. And in chapter 8, verse 6, he extends that argument a little. He says, it is a better covenant. So he repeats what he said in chapter 7, verse 22. In chapter 7, verse 22, he says, Christ is the mediator of a, or surety of a better covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, he says, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. And then he adds, because it is based upon better promises. But it is only when you get later on in the passage, particularly to verses 10 to 12, that he now explains the better promises or blessings of this covenant. And there are four promises that God has made to us in the new covenant, four blessings he has promised to give us in the new covenant. And these explain why this new covenant is superior to all covenants that God has made with his people. What's the first promise that God has made in the new covenant? Well, the first one is to be seen as the internalization of the law. This is seismic in the passage in the Old Testament. In verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. And write them on their hearts. That's the first promise of the new covenant. The internalization of the law. See the Mosaic law was an outward and external code. When God gave the law to Moses. He wrote it on two tablets of stones. And commanded him to deposit these two tablets of the law. In the ark of the covenant. In the most holy place of a tabernacle. The Mosaic law was exterior. And consequently, Israel's relationship with God was exterior. It was ceremonial. It was outward. It was cultic. It did not, as a rule, penetrate the heart. Interestingly, God had always desired that people were to serve Him with the heart. So you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and even there, they are told, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the Mosaic covenant was an external covenant. The heart of Israel was not engaged. And when you ask Jeremiah, what was the problem with Israel? He would tell you the problem with Israel was a heart problem. 
It's interesting how Jeremiah describes the condition of his people. First of all, he tells us that they have a hardened and rebellious heart. Chapter 9, verse 26. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have a heart that is tough and nothing will penetrate it. He says of them in chapter 9, 26, all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. They lack spiritual sensitivity. And then there is a, a cutting statement about the spiritual condition of Israel in, in Jeremiah 17 and verse 1. You see, instead of God's law written on the heart, Jeremiah says that it is sin that is written on the heart of Israel. Look at how he puts it. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. You see, the Old Testament and Scripture refer to the heart as the center, that, that which drives human life. The heart, in Hebrew, does not refer to this organ that pumps blood. What it refers to generally is to the mind, one's thoughts, one's will, one's emotion, the center of our being. And the writer says that God's law was not written on their heart. That is, God's law was not controlling the center of their beings. What was controlling the center of their beings, their mind, their emotion, and their will was sin. And it is for this reason that he could say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So Israel had a heart problem under the Mosaic Covenant. Now God has said, under the new covenant, this new arrangement that he's going to establish with his people, the law will no longer be kept merely in the tabernacle, in that little box. The law will now be written on the heart. I want you to understand that the description of the law written on the heart is another way of saying that in the new covenant, the people of God will be regenerate. It is the same thing that Ezekiel speaks to when he speaks of a new heart in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Where the Lord says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statue. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, God is promising in the internalization of the law to give them a new heart. To change their minds. To change their emotions. To change their will. God will change them by his spirit. He will in fact plant his word in their lives, in their minds so much so that they will obey God as easily as they breathe. Obedience will, be, will come, become something as natural as breathing. Because you see, God's will and requirement is no longer something exterior, but he has written it on the heart by the Spirit. So that's the first blessing. 
The second blessing of the new covenant is of a special relationship with God. So in verse 10 it continues, after he says, I'll put my law in their minds, he says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is what is described often as the covenant formula, and it appears very often in the Old Testament. There are some 25 specific references where God says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. This reference first occurs in Exodus 6, verses 7 and 8. It occurs frequently in the prophecy of Ezekiel. God will be their God and they will be his children. You see, the language here, when God says that I will be your God and you will be my people, God is committing himself to being their spiritual father and they his spiritual children. They will become, one writer says, the object of God's special care and kindness. Now, one may say, but how is this then part of the new covenant? Because it was in the Old Testament. The difference is that in the new covenant, this promise that they will be God's children and he will be their God takes on added meaning. Because when the promise was made, I will be your God and you will be my people, it was made to ethnic Israel. But in the New Testament, something marvelous occurs. See, God not only gives himself to Israel, but he gives himself to those who are Gentiles, to those who do not belong to the old covenant. That is why in 2 Corinthians 6, when Paul tells the Corinthians who were Gentiles in background, that they were to separate from that which is unclean and from Baal, he says if they did so, they will become the children of God. God will be their God. He's talking to Gentiles. When Peter wrote his epistle in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, and he tells these believers, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priest with a holy nation, his own special people. He's taking the language that was used in the Old Testament for Israel, and he applies it to Gentiles. What is new about this promise is that we, who are Gentiles, have now God as our God. And we are his children. And the writer, John, sees a day when this will finally come to fruition, when fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth will belong to us. He says, And I heard a loud voice on heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. We will have God, and we now in the new covenant, we have God as our God, the one under his special care and recipient of his special kindness. But the new covenant offers a third blessing, a third promise. Here it is a personal knowledge of God in verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that in the new covenant, teaching is unnecessary. You don't have to go to church. And you don't have to listen to anybody. It doesn't mean that. When it says here, None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. It's not saying that all instruction is irrelevant and superfluous. But what it is saying is that in the new covenant, 
you will not need to tell others that they must know the Lord, those who are God's people, those who belong to the people of God. Why? Because every one of them, from the least to the greatest, will know God. What he's saying is that unlike the Old Covenant, where you have prophets, for instance, who could cry out that the people of God did not know the Lord, no believer will be part of the New Covenant who doesn't know the Lord. You see, we're talking about knowing God not merely intellectually, but involved in an intimate, personal relationship with God, a relationship of love and of trust and of obedience. You see, that, that was a problem with Israel. Under the Old Covenant, you had people who were apostates, people who did not trust or believe in God. They did not know God. They were part of the Old Covenant just because they were from the line of Abraham. But under the new covenant, the new covenant of which we are a part, there will be no unregenerate person. Every person who is, belongs to the church, who is part of the new covenant, knows the Lord. They have a personal relationship with him. And I want to say here that this is a cutting statement and brings into question covenant theology practiced by Presbyterians and Reformed believers. Because there are, there, you see, there's a school of thought that says, because children belong to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant, then the new covenant must include the children of believers. But the new covenant, Jesus would make it very clear as he speaks through his prophet, the writer of Hebrews, is only for those who know the Lord. That if there are children in the new covenant, they must Know the Lord, because the basis of entrance into the covenant, the covenant, the new covenant, is that from the least of them to the greatest of them, they will know the Lord. So we believe in a regenerate church membership. We believe that those who are part of the new covenant must have a relationship with Christ. There will be no unregenerate person in the new covenant. I think there are great blessings to be born in a Christian home. But just being born in a Christian home won't get you into heaven. There must be a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, a personal knowledge of God that only comes by faith in Christ. But I've come to the fourth blessing. It is by far the greatest of the blessings of the new covenant. You will notice in verse 12 it says, For I will be merciful to their righteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This great blessing of the new covenant stands before us as forgiveness. Here the writer says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. It's explanatory. It's the most significant statement about the new covenant. The newness of the new covenant lies in this respect that it provides total and final forgiveness of sins. It's interesting, you know, Jeremiah is quoted here by the writer in verses 8 to 12. He also quotes this Jeremiah passage again in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. In that passage, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, where he quotes this Jeremiah passage, he passes over much of the content of the new covenant. But there's one detail he does not pass over, it's forgiveness. He repeats the forgiveness of sins again in chapter 10, 16 and 17. That, that tells you that for the writer, he brackets this section, 
chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 10, 16, and 17 with forgiveness. It's at the very heart of the new covenant. Forgiveness of sins. You know that it is the principal blessing of the new covenant because it says four. And what he's doing here, he's explaining that all of the preceding blessings, the interior placement of the law, being the people of God, knowing God, all of these blessings hinge upon forgiveness of sins. You see, this is what Israel did not truly understand under the old covenant. You see, the the old covenant, the Mosaic law, made provision for sin. But it was limited provision. For instance, the law of Moses did not provide forgiveness for what we call high-handed sins. If you know that something was wrong, if you knew that stealing was wrong, and you deliberately went out and stole, that would be seen as a deliberate high-handed sin. There was no forgiveness for that. There were a class of sins that were called no-hope sins. Doesn't matter what you do. Sins like murder and adultery. There was no provision, no provision, not even temporal provisions for that. Secondly, not only was the old covenant limited in its scope in terms of forgiveness, it did not totally remove sins. So it, it didn't cover all of the sins, and those it covered, it never covered them finally. So every year on the Day of Atonement, there was a mentioning again of sins, and it went on and on for centuries. But in the new covenant, here is a promise, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. You see, God will forgive sin, and, and forgiveness flows from the mercy, from the compassion of God to those who are unrighteous. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, this is the language of forgiveness. God is not only going to forgive their sins in the new covenant, be merciful to them, but God is going to remember their sins no more. Listen, this is a metaphor because God does not forget anything. When the Bible speaks about God remembering or God remembered Israel in their groaning, It doesn't mean that for 400 years God had forgotten that they were down in Egypt. When the Bible says God remembers, it means God acts. So when God does not remember our sins, it means he will not move against us punitively. He will not bring judgment against us for our sins. You see, forgiveness is to release. It's to let someone go free from an obligation or debt. God is going to release us from our debt of sin and he's going to do so permanently and absolutely so much so that he does not bring it to mind. He puts it behind him. He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. Indeed, the words of Jeremiah in the words of Isaiah is true. I, even I, says the Lord, I am he that blots out your transgressions for my sake and I'll remember their sins no more. We have seen then the blessings of the new covenant. But we want to, before we draw a conclusion, look quickly at the basis of this new covenant. If the new covenant consists of these blessings, chief of them which is forgiveness of sins, the question is how do we get them? And no reflection on the new covenant is complete without recognizing 
the connection between the new covenant and the work of Christ. Going back to chapter 7.22, going back to chapter 8, verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better covenant. The new covenant is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And it is based upon the blood shedding, the giving of Christ's life on the cross. You know, the writer of Hebrews teaches us that covenant making requires blood shedding. Chapter 9, verse 18. The old covenant came into effect when Moses sprinkled blood on the people in Exodus 24, verse 8. We read, he took blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Why was blood necessary? It was necessary to show the seriousness of the covenant relationship. Some would believe that bloodshedding was part of a self-maledictory oath, an oath where God is so serious that he promises to sever himself if he does not keep his oath. What is required, however, is that for a relationship with God, there has to be an atonement, and so blood was necessary for the covenant. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 8, the writer hints that Christ offered something for this new covenant. He had something to offer, and he's alluding to his blood. But he, interestingly, in chapter 9, verse 15, he connects Christ's mediation and his suffering. Christ is mediator, the one who represents us to God, but he is our mediator by means of his death. And so he says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life in Hebrews 9.15. What I'm arguing then is that we have these great blessings, blessings of God's law written on our hearts, blessings that we are God's people and that we know him and that we have our sins forgiven because of Christ's blood. It is the blood of Christ that brings the new covenant into effect, that inaugurates the new covenant. And Jesus makes this clear in the gospel. When he met with his disciples to celebrate the Passover, he says, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Paul, referring to the same incident, says to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. What is interesting then is that in the passage there in Exodus 24, it was by the blood of the covenant that Moses, the Moses covenant came into effect. And it is by the blood of the new covenant, Christ's own blood, that he secures all the blessings that we now have as God's people. You see, his blood is the blood of the covenant. My dear friends, Hebrews presents many challenges to us. The argument is intricate and difficult at times. The images are strange. But we must never become weary. We must never be put off by the difficulty of this book from the broader picture and the great truth that it confronts us with. You see, Hebrews is necessary because it deals with the same problem that we have faced throughout time, alienation from God. That whether we lived in the first century or today, what is true of both societies is that we as sinners are separate from God. 
We are strangers to God because of our sins. And what Hebrews says is that our God did not just look at us and turn away his face. He did something about her alienation. He did something to quell that insuperably ache and unrest in our souls. He entered into a covenant, into an arrangement, into a relationship with us. He, in fact, cut a covenant with us. Why a covenant? Because he wants us to know that his commitment to us is not only intimate, but it is a covenant. It means that it is legal and is official. And by the way, he gives it to us in writing. That's why we have the new covenant, which is the New Testament. That's God's commitment to us. God has entered into arrangement with us. And in this arrangement, he has promised us that we will be his people. That he will change us from the inside out. That we will all know him. He has made a commitment to us. The greatest of commitment that he will forgive the sins we have committed against him. Your sins and your lawless deeds, he says, I will remember no more. I want to say to you that every Christian who has come to know Christ and have come to this new covenant must rejoice because we have our sins completely forgiven. It is Hugh Martin in the 1800s who told us this, that the forgiveness of sin is a great blessing. He says there are three reasons that you must know that this new, this new covenant and forgiveness is a great blessing. He says, first of all, because forgiveness is the act of God the judge. This is not now some priest or some religious leader saying your sins are forgiven you. This is the one against whom we have sinned. The one who has all the right to condemn us, who has forgiven us. It is an act of God the judge. He says, secondly, it is not only the act of the judge, it is an act of love. In forgiving us, God had the option of leaving us so that we are condemned. He could say, you know what, you deserve what you get. I'm going to leave you alone to your sins. You want your sins, you can have them and they will damn you. But he chose a different path. He saw us in his mercy and extended forgiveness. It's an act of love. Hugh Martin reminds us that this act is an effective act because it not only cleanses us outwardly, but inwardly. It cleanses the conscience. And this covenant that God has made, this covenant that he has made to forgive us our sins, is guaranteed by God's faithfulness. That God will keep his promises. His promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. He does not backtrack. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change the terms. What he says he will do, he does. So you have the very word of God. And listen, this is why it's important for you to be under this new covenant. Because when sin rises up against you, when you feel that you, you don't deserve to be in heaven, when you think your sins are too great, when Satan says you, 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 you're not genuinely saved because sin is still present, you can plead the new covenant. You can go to God and say, Lord, have mercy upon me because you have given me a covenantal agreement. You have given, you me, you have given to me your word. It is he who says, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. 
We may say like the psalmist in Psalm 74, 20, Lord, have respect to your covenant. When we feel we're not good enough, when our consciences rise up and condemn us, we can say, Lord, be merciful because I have it here. I have it in the new covenant. This is where you have said that you will forgive my sins. Lord, I plead your covenant arrangement. I plead your commitment to me. It's important. Because you can speak God's word back to him. This is what you have said. This is what you have given me. My friends, listen, this new covenant is a reason for praise. But you and I must live in the realization that we are indebted to Christ. Because it is only in Jesus Christ that we have a new covenant with God. You need to know that the work of Christ, and here again I depend upon Hugh Martin. He reminds us that the work of Christ on the cross is a covenant work. You can't look at Christ's work and divorce it from the covenant. Jesus Christ came to inaugurate the new covenant. It is he who purchased our salvation by his blood. You see, you know the covenant God has made, the agreement God has made to forgive your sins will stand because he signed it and sealed it with the blood of Jesus. I'm arguing that it is the blood of Jesus Christ that has paid for our forgiveness, for our relationship with God. And we must live in gratitude. But we must not only admire Christ for this great act, we must do more. We must come to him by faith. We must lay claim on the blessings that he gives through his death. My friends, there are those Jerry, that Isaiah describes. He says that they have made a covenant with death. And you may be here this morning and you have made a covenant with death. You think you have a covenant with life, but you do have a covenant with death. Why did Isaiah said the leaders of his people had a covenant with death because they were depending on everything else but God. They were trusting in everything else but God. And if you're trusting in anything else, your good works, your family pedigree, if you're trusting anything else but Christ, you have a covenant with death. And one day it will cut you down and sweep you away and you will fall into hell forever and ever. And the only way around that is to have a covenant of life. And that covenant of life is through Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is only by trusting in Christ that you have these blessings. You can't have your sins forgiven. You can't have true knowledge of God. You can't have a new heart unless you have come to Christ. And my pleading with you this morning is that you will make your way swiftly to Jesus Christ. And finally, my dear friends, if you are a part of this new covenant, listen. God's covenant arrangement requires two things from us. It requires love on our part and obedience. Love and faithfulness. The writer of Hebrews says, consider the author. He says, consider the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he calls him as the one who is the apostle and high priest. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to God who appointed him. And we who are part of the new covenant must covenant ourselves to God. In the 1600s, and I'll leave you with this, 
there were a group of men in Scotland called Covenanters. And these Covenanters were godly men who resisted the teaching of Rome and resisted the monarchy's rule of the church. They covenanted themselves with God that they would be faithful to his word and not deviate. You and I have entered into a covenant with God, the covenant of grace, a covenant in which our sins are forgiven. And you and I are called to love the Lord with all our hearts. And we are called to be faithful, to not drift away from the things we have heard, to ensure that a root of bitterness does not arise within us. We are called not to neglect so great a salvation, to take care that in none of us there's an evil heart of an unbelieving heart, not to harden our heart as in the rebellion. We are called to faithfulness. And if you belong to this covenant, then you must covenant yourself to God to be faithful to him in all of his requirements because he has done a great thing for you in covenanting himself, committing himself fully and wholly to you for Jesus' sake. Amen.